Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. So glad you joined us. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we are going to talk about the apostasy. As you know, we are going through the Come Follow Me readings and addressing common questions that evangelicals might ask about our faith as we go along. Our purpose here is not to fuel debate, um, but to help you understand where your evangelical friends might be coming from so you can have better conversations with them and maybe be able to offer them a little bit from our faith that might um, bless their lives. So our scripture this week comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Um, and this is in the English Standard Version. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So on the one hand, what a fantastic, reassuring scripture. This is Christ talking to Peter. I'm going to build my church and nothing is going to prevent that from happening. And on the other hand, you can immediately see how there is a lot of debate on what this verse actually means. And I'll be honest, Latter-day Saint friends, some of the ways we talk about the apostasy are adding to that confusion. And I think as we go along, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. Um, so first off, I will tell you, when I was an evangelical, the apostasy and the accompanying restoration would have been the hardest concepts for me to understand. And in fact, when I was taking lessons from the missionaries, I wasn't necessarily an evangelical. At that point, I kind of moved on from there. But that's where I spent the vast majority of my church life. I certainly still thought like an evangelical in a lot of ways. And I did not get what the missionaries were were saying to me. And, I, and I'm someone who has a really good formal theological education, right? So the disconnect here is real. This is the spot in our conversation where it's easiest to see the phenomena that if you ask a fish to describe water, he cannot do it. He has no idea what it means to live without water. And so he has no idea what to compare it to. I took missionary lessons for nine months. So I talked to a lot of missionaries and we talked about the apostasy many times. And it was kind of hard for a lot of them to get past, well, the apostasy happened and this is why we need a restoration couldn't really describe very well what they were talking about because that has always been a true understanding for them. But it's hard for evangelicals to kind of make the leap. You, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, from the Protestant point of view, the evangelical point of view, the pre-Reformation Catholic Church um, that often gets used as an example of why a restoration had to happen, it's kind of a blip on the landscape. It, it's not the, the normal case. Like we might point to the selling of indulgences and some of the things that Martin Luther was railing against. And most evangelicals would say that doesn't have very much to do with what the church actually was. That was one moment in time where things had gone bad, not characteristic of the whole thing. And honestly, during my lessons, when that was sort of presented to me, why did we need an apostasy? 
they might give an example, a pre-reformation example. And, and my thought to myself was, gosh, these are young kids. They're high school graduates. They haven't really studied much history. They're just simply unaware of the vastness of Christian history. That, that's really the only thing I could do with that. But once they started to understand what they were actually saying, and it took an embarrassingly long time for that all to click for me. I'll, I'll just tell you that. Um, but once I understood it, I started to see that this was a case where Latter-day Saints really were using the same language to mean something different. And for me, at the end of the day, the nuances of how our church is using that language, that they are better. Like that's why I'm here, but they're hard to understand. Um, our understanding is, is theologically fuller. It's more hopeful. Um, in my opinion, it's be it's better. I would not have converted if that weren't true. But I will also say, this, this is one place in where we just don't talk about that fullness very well. So today, I want to talk about the terms that we use when we're talking about the apostasy and help you see how evangelicals hear them so that maybe you can help someone kind of shortcut through some of the difficulties. Right, so we have talked in many episodes of this series about how that is true um, and how there's some confusion between us. And usually I have just used some fairly informal definitions of evangelicals think this and, and Latter-day Saints think this. Turns out that there actually is a, a, a more formal way of doing this. There's a, a niche dictionary. It's the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. And it gives us the, the definitions to words that evangelicals would agree on. Um, it, it's called Baker's because Baker is the publisher. It's a nice, good, thick 1,000 page dictionary. So we're gonna draw on that a little bit. Um, so let's start with the word apostasy. Evangelicals don't use this word a lot, uh, but it's probably in their vocabulary. It's certainly in their leader's vocabulary. Um, a, a pastor or anyone who's been to divinity school um, or even has sort of a basic theological education would be well aware of this word. Here, here's how Baker's defines it. They say apostasy is defection from the faith an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and his truth, the sin of apostasy results in the abandonment of Christian doctrine and conduct. And evangelicals use this word with that definition in two ways. So first, and probably the most common, is that, the, that an apostasy is something that happens to an individual, right? This isn't a this isn't a wide scale thing most of the time they use it. It's someone who has decided they're not going to follow Christ anymore. Um, he went off the rails and fell into apostasy. Like that would be the way that maybe they would use it. Basically it's a person who used to believe the right things and no longer does. That's the most common way an evangelical is gonna use this. However, it does get used in a second way and you'll see this is where a lot of the confusion comes in because the word can be applied to large groups of people in, in an evangelical understanding. 
they see widespread apostasy as an eschatological sign. Eschatological has to do with the end times. So they see that as a sign that the second coming of Christ is near. It's not that they don't believe it, that an apostasy could happen. They absolutely believe that. They just, they, they tie it to, to the end times. They tie it to Christ coming back again. So if the whole world goes into apostasy, the return of Christ is near. Um, here, here's how they get there. Just like us, evangelicals can read the Old Testament and they see the they see the same like pride cycle that we do, right? Um, the Israelites follow God for a while. They start to prosper. They fall away. God disciplines them by allowing some bad things to happen. They get back in line and follow God for a while and, and around and around they go. Evangelicals see this as a prototype of what will happen before the second coming of Christ. This is what happened before the first coming. This will be what happens before the second coming. Um, they base this in a verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day, meaning the return of Jesus Christ, will not come until the rebellion occurs. So they believe an apostasy will happen. They don't believe that it's happened yet. So in that verse, they hear that this is a future thing. And when it happens, you can expect to see Jesus again. So when we say the apostasy has happened, it does not compute for them because if the apostasy has happened, surely Christ would have come again and, and, and where is he? So it, it, their brains kind of like blue screen on this. They, they don't know what to do with it. Another term that we have to bring up that causes a lot of confusion here is priesthood. Now, there's a lot to say about priesthood, and we actually have several episodes coming up where we're going to talk about some various aspects of priesthood. When talking about the apostasy, though, Latter-day Saints would say, and this comes straight from the church's website, um, that after Jesus ascends back into heaven, the apostles were killed and priesthood authority including the keys to direct and receive revelation for the entire church was taken from the earth because the church was no longer led by priesthood authority, error crept into church teachings, right? That is what we believe. The word priesthood really throws evangelicals when we tie priesthood to apostasy because we say the priesthood was taken away from the earth and the earth fell into apostasy. They don't know what to do with that. Um, again, according to the Baker Dictionary, priesthood works for them. It's defined for them in four ways. So we get the priests that we see in the Old and New Testament, the, the Israelite priests, the priesthood of all believers, the post-resurrection ordained priesthood, which evangelicals modernize into um, being a pastor, and the priesthood of Jesus. Those are the four ways evangelicals understand what priesthood is. So when they hear us say the priesthood was lost from the face of the earth, it does not make sense because none of those four definitions work. Clearly, the statement cannot be applied to the priests of the Old or New Testament. That doesn't, doesn't make sense. 
it can't be talking about the priesthood of all believers because believers in Christ have existed on the earth since the resurrection, which has, has never gone away. And they're not wrong about that, by the way. We'll talk about that in a minute. Three, it can't mean that pastors don't exist because clearly they do. And it can't mean that Jesus is no longer our great high priest. They have four definitions and none of them fit what we're talking about. So of course they're confused. They, they can't quite work out what we're saying. And here's why. For Latter-day Saints, there are two additional meanings of priesthood that have to be understood in order to understand what's going on in the apostasy. Those are, again, this is straight from the church's website, priesthood is the power and authority of God. It has existed and will continue to exist without end. And two, immortality, priesthood is the power and authority that God gives to man to act in all things necessary for the salvation of God's children. Straight, straight from the website, right? You, your Latter-day Saint ears would think uh, like, that's boring. Of course, I know that. Evangelicals do not use those definitions for priesthood. So when we say the priesthood, authority, priesthood was removed from the church, they don't know what we're talking about. And evangelicals get really nervous right here. This might sound funny to your Latter-day Saint ears, but they hear what we're saying about priesthood authority as being popish, Catholic. They, they, they think we're being overly Catholic here. They have no conceptualization of the idea that certain actions like baptism would need to be done in certain ways by certain people according to God's law. This is not a concept for them. They would say something like, um, we take the principle of baptism, we contextualize it into our specific culture and setting, and there are no absolute rules about how it must be done. It's sort of a pragmatism wins approach to ordinances. Evangelicals are highly pragmatic, for better or for worse. The idea that a person might need to wait to be baptized because it requires someone who bears the priesthood complete and utter nonsense to them they would have this sort of um hero cowboy response to that of like well i would just jump right in and baptize that person i don't care about your rules um it, it, this it, this is a very heartfelt value of theirs they're not trying to be rebellious against god's rules they're not trying to be um bucking of well they are trying to be bucking of authority they're not trying to buck god's authority they believe that that authority has been given to them the individual who gets to decide in any given situation how god would want something done and there's a little bit of a prototype here that have been much earlier in American religion than the evangelicals. The evangelicals have been around about 75 years, right? They're, they're actually a very young group for the amount of influence that they've had. But long before them um, was the beginnings of the Methodist church. You've certainly heard of the Methodists. They were in, um, they, the Methodists invented this attitude, the, the pragmatic, I don't need your authority attitude. Here's the story. Back in the 1700s, 
pre-revolutionary war. So we're talking colonies still owned by England, right? The Church of England, whose members are called Anglicans, was well established in the colonies. They had many churches. There were other kinds of churches too, but, but there were many Anglican churches. But all the senior leadership of their church is headquartered back in England. And there's there's no phone, there's no internet, there's no instant communication. Things move very slowly for these Anglicans in America. And they're pretty frustrated. Um, it's an entirely different context. All the same frustrations that drove the Revolutionary War are driving the frustrations of the Anglicans in America with their English leaders. So the, English, or the Revolutionary War ends in 1783, the Anglican leaders in America, they were ready. They wanted to, to start spreading the gospel. They, the cities and the colonies were well established at that point, but there were people living in the, in the outlying areas. It, westward expansion wasn't really in full swing yet. That, the, the infancy of that is just starting kind of post-revolutionary war. But the Anglican leaders already see where this is going, and they want to develop churches in these outlying places so that as they are, as the new towns and cities are developed, there's churches waiting there for the people. That's the vision that these Anglican leaders had. Their leaders back in England made it a little bit hard for them. Feelings were still pretty sensitive. The war had only ended a few months ago um, when two Anglican brothers, John and Charles Wesley, who, who were the leaders among the, the Anglicans who had become frustrated, they want pragmatic solutions to how American churches should self-govern and make decisions about when and how to evangelize. The Anglican leadership in England basically says, no, we, we still want to be in charge of you. Wesley brothers say, all right, we will start our own church. And they start the Methodist church, primarily so that they could figure out how to reach people who live outside of the established cities at that point. They needed and wanted practical solutions. It was sort of a, I don't need your permission, leaders in England, goodbye. The evangelicals inherited this attitude from them. And they still very much have it. You can't tell me what to do. I don't need your authority. I will innovate solutions without you getting in the way. It's a very, very American way to think about faith and religion. Um, this is a high value for them to solve problems without bureaucracy. So when we say something like ordinances require proper authority, all they hear is I want to put bureaucracy and rules in your way. One final definition we need to touch on, which really honestly is more, it's more of a cultural issue than a literal definition. Um, this is from the same article on the church website talking about the apostasy. We get, because the church was no longer led by priesthood authority, error crept into church teachings. Good people and much truth remained. But the gospel as established by Jesus Christ was lost. This period is called the Great Apostasy. Now, how that sometimes gets taught, gets taught by members of our church is something closer to absolutely everything from God was removed from the earth 
and no evidence of his presence could be found anywhere. And this is maybe where we, Latter-day Saints, could be a little more careful in how we say some things. Because it's actually pretty insulting to, to evangelicals, to Protestants, to Catholics, to anyone who was alive um, <laughs> during this great apostasy period who loved Christ, who, who worked hard to be faithful to God in the best way that they could. Um, just because priesthood authority was lost on the church, meaning there was no one there to receive revelation for the entire church, error crept in, does not mean that every single person on the earth stopped loving Jesus Christ and wanting to follow his commandments. That's just not what happened. In every era of history, we can find people who love God and they were alive and well and living their lives as faithfully as they could. So it causes some real confusion for evangelicals when we try to suggest that that wasn't true. The, the presence of God was entirely removed from the face of the earth. Not only does it not compute to them, it doesn't make sense in light of the facts of history. And it's actually quite needless to suggest that every bit of God's presence was removed. That's not even what our church is teaching, as evidenced by this quote I just read to you. But still, culturally, some members of the church are still saying it that way. It's not super helpful. I hope that this conversation has helped you understand some of the reasons why this conversation about the apostasy is hard with evangelicals. Hopefully, you might be able to see some of the ways it's getting muddled and maybe some of the ways you could talk better about it with them, understand better what they're saying, and be able to share with them the really actually very good news that a restoration did happen, that errors crept in and, and we all Christians still sort of had to pay the consequences of that for a really long time, but that a loving heavenly father is helping those to be corrected. Um, it, it's, it's a wonderful message, but unless we understand how to say that to evangelicals, they aren't going to hear it. That's what I hope you got out of today. Join us next time and we will take up another topic. We'll see you then.